Hello, and welcome to the Belt and Road Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Mikesterino, coming to you today from Raleigh, North Carolina. It's been a little bit of a delay since our last episode. Apologize, but I'm really excited to be back. Today, we are going to talk about Chinese influence, or sometimes lack thereof, of uh, economic development uh, for countries in which Chinese firms are financing and building a lot of infrastructure projects. Specifically, uh, we're, we're going to be looking at the case of Chinese infrastructure building in Mozambique and you know, asking kind of the questions of what responsibility do Chinese firms have to affect large economic development gains throughout the Belt and Road? And how can host countries better position themselves to retrieve relative gains? And sometimes what could possibly be holding them back in doing so? To talk about this on a very specific case is we, we could have no better guest, Ulrike Wethal. Uh, she is a researcher at the Center for Development and Environment at the University of Oslo. I brought her in because I was you know, doing my own research and I found two of her papers, which co-linked really well. And I was just, I was like, this is the exact type of work that I need to get on the Spell to Road podcast because it really goes in depth uh, into um, one case study and one very specific factor. These two papers are Passive Host or Demanding Stakeholders, Understanding Mozambique's Negotiating Power in the Face of China, uh, which was in the Forum for Development Studies in 2017. And the second paper, Beyond the China Factor, Challenges to Backward Linkages in the Mozambican Construction Sector. Ulrike, welcome to the Belt and Road podcast. Thank you very much, and thank you for the invitation. Great. So for many of our listeners who might not be uh, quite too adept on uh, Chinese Mozambican uh, political economy and, and, and uh, bilateral history, can you give us just a quick snapshot of, of, of modern era, so I guess post-China reform or you can, uh, since CCP is in power, the Chinese Mozambican history. Yeah, okay. It starts a bit before the reforms, but it dates back to approximately the 60s when China provided diplomatic support and some military support, guerrilla training for the liberation movement in a quite lengthy armed struggle against the Portuguese colonial rule. Diplomatic relations were then formalized by independence in 1975 where the liberation movement, Firilimo, created a one-party state. After this, the relations between Mozambique and China somewhat cooled as Mozambique moved closer to Soviet at the end of the 1970s, declaring themselves, for example, as Marxist-Leninist and sort of taking a stance in this somewhat of a conflict between China and Soviet. But still, relations were maintained. And China provided Mozambique, for example, with emergency assistance and some loans also during the 80s. But by the end of the 80s, Mozambique had abandoned its Marxist-Leninist orientation, much because it also needed the support of Western donors and institutions to end um, what has been called both civil war and destabilization war from 77 to 92, and then embarking on more of a market orientation and structural adjustment through World Bank and IMF relations. So the relations between China and Mozambique, they were gradually then rebuilt from the end of the 1990s with first a specific funding of about 20 million USD provided by China Exim Bank to support Chinese companies to start businesses in Mozambique and also the building of a couple of official buildings in Maputo. And this sort of marked the start of the more focus on economic construction projects. And since then, this cooperation has diversified and also intensified. And even though engagements in health and education and agriculture has also continued, 
this specific economic and more commercial cooperation has increased over the 2000s and especially then from the mid 2000s. Investments have risen and China now ranks among the top five investors in Mozambique. And in terms of construction projects, China tends to focus on large scale visible projects, which is very clear when you, when you explore the record of Chinese construction projects in Mozambique. These are conference centers, the foreign ministry, international airport, football stadium, Maputo Ring Road, Maputo Katemba Bridge, and many other projects concerning the construction of various roads and bridges and, and water systems and housing. And Mozambique has, has come to more recently rely on Chinese capital and skills for the execution of several priority projects, especially then in, in the construction sector. So there, so China is one of the top five investors within it. Um, is that including, I guess, EPC contract, uh, where they're where they're the contractor, or they're actually investing as well? Both. This is difficulty with with much of of China's work in in the developing world that it's kind of hard to diversify between what more aid like uh, kind of agreements and what what are commercial loans and what are more concessional loans. But when you look at Chinese engagement in the Chinese construction project, they both enter in through especially China Exim Bank funding, where mm-hmm. there are often closed tenders in China organized by the Exim Bank for only a specific set of Chinese state-owned companies. But they also continue to win international and national tenders for construction work in the country. So it's a little bit of both. And you also see the more in investment, uh, specific foreign investment types where Chinese private companies have invested or, or joined into a joint venture with a Mozambican, very often a, a government agency, actually, and not an, an economic actor, and form joint, joint venture where the Chinese private company holds the majority of the investment. Yeah. And so you spent years on the ground doing field research in Mozambique. And what were the projects in which you were doing uh, specific case studies on? The first one is the Maputo Ring Road. It's a large stretch of road around the capital area where this one is specifically funded by by uh, China Exim Bank. It's about 350 million US dollars. And it's constructed by a Chinese state-owned company that won the tender through this closed tender in China, which is typical for for Chinese Exim Bank funding. And the second one represents a, a quite different trend in Chinese involvement in African construction, where this is financed by the French Development Agency, but built by three Chinese companies, where I focus on, on one of these. And this was the ex- expansion and development of the water system in and around the capital area. And the third project was then a, an example of this, this type of joint venture that I just mentioned, where a Chinese private company has, has created a joint venture with a Mozambican development fund under the control of the Ministry of Public Works, which together then form a new type of, of private company. And this is financed by an investment of more than 400 million USD, where the Chinese SOE holds 85% and the Mozambican development fund for real estate holds only 15%. And this joint venture takes more of an administrative structure and then they use Chinese and one Mozambican subcontractors for the actual work. So they're three quite different projects that I looked at because I wanted to see if the difference in financing structure would influence sort of how it played out on the ground and, and what actors were involved and things like that. 
Yeah, and we'll definitely get to um, the results uh, from what you found on the ground. But first, I just want to go into one of the main concepts that you had in it for for our listeners here, the idea of backwards linkages. So can you just give a, a brief overview of what is a backwards linkage and how they can be important for the development of a country? Yeah, definitely. When, when sort of going into this theme, I was puzzled with how literature on foreign investments, and especially then in infrastructure, is presented as somewhat of a magic bullet for economic development when the empirical evidence can be said only to establish a link between investments and economic growth and not necessarily economic development. And of course, as you know, the economic growth, which we measure in GDP, is more of this economic measurement of market value of all goods and services produced in a country, whereas economic development refers to more of an, a long-term contribution to the national economy, technological and economic upgrading, um, and understood then as crucial processes for industrializing and diversifying economies. So in order for different type of foreign activity and foreign investments to actually benefit the national economy and not just uh, the GDP, there has to be created some sort of linkage between the foreign project and the national economy. And here I use linkage theory, which is most commonly associated with economic historian Albert Hirschman. And he wrote about this in the 50s, 60s and 70s, in a time where that was quite quite different and, and where modernization dominated development uh, thinking. But, but also this strong belief that capital investment would induce development in the developing world. And many of these ideas from modernization theory are also visible in the discourses that we, we, we hear here today about development, this belief in, in foreign investments, in foreign companies bringing knowledge and technology to a developing economies, uh, and, and this strong emphasis on, on economic growth. But I see that since Hirschman wrote about economic linkages, the upscaling of economic development processes or economic globalization processes has made the question of linkages both more relevant but also more complex. It has become more relevant because of the, the greater use of outsourcing in multinational firms and, and also the promotion of, of um, export-oriented economies, the promotion of foreign direct investment-led growth strategies in many developing countries where the long-term goal is to make national industries globally competitive through this transfer of, of technology and, and know-how. But it has also become more complex because of the increasingly global organization of production, where the speed and also scale of economic globalization has made it possible to stretch economic linkages across borders and continents, meaning that an economic activity can have complex backward linkages without this really benefiting the national economy. So in my own work, I focus then on domestic backward linkages, and I define this as direct employment, domestic employment, and the demand for inputs from local suppliers and, and local subcontractors as a way to understand to what extent these projects become linked with, with the national economy. Yeah, and it's, it certainly seems strange in the, I guess, the field of development um, studies, uh, which I'm not completely versed in, but just the idea that foreign investment is great, yes, but how does foreign investment actually affected on the ground outside of just quick GDP growth that then maybe is not is not sustained because there isn't the input industries or anything else. Well, especially specifically you look at China's history of developing. I mean, they, they were very uh, methodical with an industrial policy for better or worse sometimes uh, of creating those backwards linkages that uh, was able to have them upscale so quickly as to where they are today in, in terms of their development scale and how that's affected the poverty rates uh, in, in China. I mean, what is it, 900 million people have gone out of, you know, 
poverty yeah. since the 1980s. Uh, right, right. And, and so you know, backwards linkages are incredibly important. And just that kind of gap between foreign investment just in itself is great and GDP growth itself is great. But what type of GDP growth can actually create larger multiplier effects is the right word here, but greater linkages to other industries within that national economy for that um, lesser developed countries? Yes. And there are tons of examples all over the developing world where foreign activity or foreign investments become more isolated islands of growth and not necessarily contribute to this more long-term processes of, of capacity building and, and, and skills enhancement that in turn would increase competitiveness and productivity in the national economy. That's, that's, yeah, the whole idea of national economic development has, has somewhat gone under the radar for some time, I would say. So looking into uh, Chinese investment or, or financing and construction of infrastructure, large-scale infrastructure in Mozambique, did you find many backwards linkages? And if, if so, or if not, you know, what were the factors that uh, led to whatever the outcome was? Well, um, <laughs> the outcome was unfortunately very disappointing. The The main domestic backward linkage was created through employment, which is not, not a, a bad thing, just that, with some at least two thirds of employees would be local Mozambican workers in all three projects. But of course, the issue with with the local workers was that they generally held low-skilled positions, casual labors on, on very short-term contracts, and there was very little diffusion of, of knowledge and, and skills in these types of positions. Apart from that, the use of local supplies and local subcontractors was very disappointing. It was only the most, most basic supplies that was locally sourced, maybe some sand, some stone, some cement, but then the cement factories are are owned by other foreign companies. Some fuel, but for for all the more advanced types of supplies, this this was imported either from from China or or from South Africa. And and what I saw was that even in in the project that was financed by the French Development Agency, they tried to prohibit or ban imports from China because they, they wanted to stimulate more local linkages, but the company ended up importing then more from South Africa, and this didn't really benefit the Mozambicans because they didn't find the, the specific quality or quantity or, or capacity in, in the Mozambican companies that they needed. So overall, it was very, very disappointing. And even even for the joint venture, in joint venture, there is somewhat more of an, you think that joint ventures would, would in itself create more local linkages since it has this partly local ownership to it and local administration to it. But even here, it was very little um, Mozambican supply. And only I had one instance of a Mozambican subcontractor, and this was for very sort of basic basic work in the second project. It was about um, cutting tubes and, and some asphalt work, which the company saw as sort of outside their core activities and not something that they wanted to wanted to do themselves. In terms of factors influencing this i wanted to see or i wanted to understand and 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 explain to what extent this was sort of attributed to chinese business model or if this was or if i could find or what kind of factors i would find as as dominating the uh, the explanations for for this lack of local linkages and of course the ownership factor or the fact that the these projects are led by 
by Chinese companies influence these issues to some extent because Chinese companies seem to outsource a little bit less, which makes it more easy to control their costs. They seem to compete on price to a larger extent than many of their competitors. So there are some factors there that that influence the creation of, of linkages. It's also the issue of, of an, a more isolated business structure and language difficulties uh, where they have little knowledge of the Mozambican society and to create new supply chains, you, you sort of need this, this issue of, of trust and experience and, and communication that is not uh, necessarily found between Chinese companies and, and Mozambican uh, companies. Uh, did you find that there was much communication between, in the project that you look specifically at, between the Chinese firms and, I guess, local Mozambican either population or employees or um, ability for one to know the other's language? Very little. This was sort of an underlying factor of many of the difficulties, especially in the workplace, because I also looked at labor relations in the in this project. But very often, many of the Chinese engineers, many of the Chinese workers, they did not uh, have any other language than Chinese to communicate on. And then you have Mozambican companies that communicate in Portuguese. And there was some some attempt to remedy this. In one of the projects, they had, had one translator that was involved when uh, at the more administrative level between Mozambican uh, government uh, or Mozambican authorities and um, Chinese project administration, but not necessarily involved in, in specific work or, or being in the field to, to ease what the cooperation on the ground between, for example, Mozambican workers and, and Chinese companies. Just curious, and this might not actually have any connection, but which uh, ownership structure was that one with the translator? Was it the French-backed one, the Exim Bank-backed one? It was actually the Exim Bank-backed oh. one. So, yeah, I was also really surprised by that. The, that was the, the only project where I found that they, they used translator. And they even okay. had, but I think it's because this, this is a this was a large Chinese state-owned company, and they expressed the the wish to establish themselves in the Mozambican market, and to become one of the companies that the Mozambican government would turn to with their priority project. So I guess there were some sort of uh, long-term strategic thinking involved in that. Um, yeah. Apart from them, these, these issues linked to Chinese companies being Chinese, this, this does not necessarily mean that other foreign companies in Mozambique are creating more linkages. For example, multinationals are generally creating follower suppliers, meaning that their supply chains follow them if they change location. It's also the issue where, where most contracts involved in, in different types of, of foreign aid projects from, from Western donors still go to donor countries um, themselves. So even though we... The Western world has at least discursively moved away from tied aid. This is, has not necessarily happened in practice. So uh, the issue of, of China and Mozambique is more that, that China are the ones dominating now, but it doesn't make them necessarily worse in terms of link, linkages than, than uh, other types of foreign companies. This has been sort of the general experience in foreign-led projects since Mozambique's first foreign investments in the late 1990s. And even here, suppliers and, and subcontractors came in from South Africa uh, or elsewhere rather than being sourced locally. So what did you see on the on the Mozambique side of either policy-wise or bureaucratic institutional-wise that was holding back greater linkages or potential for greater linkages from whether it be China that's dominating now or for any multinational that's come in to do these big development projects and creating backwards linkages to the local Mozambican construction sectors yeah, uh, or Mozambican is... sectors in general, any, any sector? <laughs> yeah. 
Um, well, what I found was that was that where a lot of China-Africa analysis stopped at the China factor. I saw that in the Mozambican case, and I would think that this, or I would assume that this would be be relevant in in other Southern African contexts as well. Was the issue of, of policies and local capabilities being more influential uh, in the sense of uh, lack of of local linkages than than the ownership in itself in terms of of local capabilities. Mozambican companies were seen as too slow. They lacked the capacity. They lacked technical standards to meet demand as to quality, quantity, and deadline, which made it too risky to depend on local companies. And in the in the projects that I've looked at, much equipment is then brought in from from China, which is seen as typical. Where when they cannot find the right quantity or quality locally, they will return to already established suppliers from China. And and even even the use of, of South African subcontractors, this is nothing new as well or or really linked to Chinese companies. But this is rather a continuation of a somewhat of a division of labor in the region where South Africa has provided goods and services that have generally been cheaper and better than the Mozambican, Mozambican ones. They lack credibility and they lack skilled workers and they lack technology and they lack access to equipment. They lack credit, which which is it's also linked to the more institutional framework where most of them are found in the in the informal sector where there's very little support, very difficult to get access to credit from local banks, for example, to to upgrade the technology. So they, they can't seem to map the level of goods and services that these Chinese construction projects need in their supplies and, and subcontractors. And then, of course, it's the issue of policies, as you, as you mentioned. And this goes for both, of course, policies in Mozambique, but also Mozambique's policy space more, more broadly. Mozambican government has mostly been focused on, on attracting these investments, on, on channeling finance and, and credit through aid and, and through loans and, and through investments, but not necessarily guide or influence these or build domestic capabilities to facilitate these types of, of linkages and, and spillovers. The Mozambican government has been extremely committed to opening the economy to foreign investment. Uh, but there's this general idea that the government should not really interfere with business decisions. And as a result, domestic companies face very sharp competition from foreign companies with very little policy support. When, when speaking to Mozambican uh, public administration, they sort of present this as a trade-off between the long-term and the short-term, where long-term and short-term goal development goals cannot really be pursued mutually. The more sort of complex goals for development that Mozambique have in its development strategies, they become transformed into more simple, more hands-on development outcomes in terms of visible development new infrastructure, modern airports. So this efficient and, and cheap infrastructure is framed as, as development, whereas local content and, and capacity building are, are more seen as obstacles for, for actually getting there. Yeah, and that's and that's such a, a chicken or egg problem uh, in terms of like the local construction sector. Because yes, it's understandable that if any firm is coming in there and building a road, let's say, and the Mozambican local construction sector does not have the capabilities to, to supply good enough supplies, of course they should go for the sake of building a good road to the supplier where it is. But if there's never any, I guess either emphasis of trying to have some sort of technology or skills transfer, because you don't want to, of course, get out to the um, it's that tricky line of, you know, before there was the import substitution policies of the you know, 50s and 60s, 70s that kind of went haywire and were too terrible. And then there was the whole Washington consensus motive of just attract foreign investment and everything else would take its place. But somewhere in between there, there's this kind of 
targeted industrial policy mindset that that's able to not only attract the foreign investment, but also build the, the skills and technology transfers for the local national sector to actually not only increase GDP growth for the short term, but also uh, have more longer term sustainable uh, economic growth and national development and upscaling. Mm. And that's sort of the core of the problem here, because when 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 the, the ISI or the import substitution policies were abandoned, it was never a question of how to do it better. It was just, okay, this didn't work. And let's let's leave it at that. And especially then after the neoliberal turn, much of, of industrial development has then been left with the private sector. And industrial policy has not really been on the agenda, where instead governments have tried to promote industrial development through then this facilitation of, of relevant infrastructures, but without re- necessarily trying to control or direct or promote the participation of domestic companies in these processes. And it's this, this returning dominant assumption that construction of infrastructure is a prerequisite for further economic development, that infrastructure development or infrastructures in itself will lead to more product in industrial activities. Whereas I found that infrastructure in itself is just one of, of several contextual factors. And it's not really that magic bullet in itself that it is presented as. It can facilitate uh, GDP growth in terms of facilitating development for, for the private sector, but it's doesn't necessarily need to connect with the national economic development processes. And then, of course, also the issue of VTO membership, which has made it difficult for government to to support or favor local supplies and subcontractors. And in addition, projects have generally increased in size, which makes it really difficult for local companies to, to compete. And, and all of these, these, these issues together, they create this situation where, where Chinese companies are mostly allowed to structure supply chains as they see fit. And and that is without much Mozambican input. A main message that I've wanted to convey, especially through this, this Beyond the China Factor article, is that the outcome of these various construction projects depend on so much more than what I've come to call this China Factor. As Chinese actors are extremely diverse and, and have competing interests on the one side, and this also goes for the recipient countries. And the outcomes of, of these different types of activities are shaped by then histories and, and structures and capacities and policies in that recipient country. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. So taking the context of China and Mozambique and your studies there, do you have any kind of broader either recommendations or, or policies or insights in which for other countries within the Belt and Road of how to best utilize uh, Chinese either funds or expertise? Well, and and I guess this this is broader than, than uh, Mozambique since China is currently executing infrastructure projects all over the developing world and even in in Europe and I, I don't know when I don't know about the US but but at least in in, uh, in Europe they're they're winning a tender in Norway etc but for the developing world I think a main recommendation would be to bring national economic development back on the agenda and because there have been tons of these discussions about how how China or China as a donor a lender an investor opens an opportunity for many developing countries that have been sort of stuck in in this one ideology, political conditionality, etc., from from the Western donors, and that this would create a window of opportunity for policy learning. And I guess a recommendation would be to try to use this opportunity before it closes with this this more diverse set of investors and donors to explore how industrial policies can assist domestic companies and, and employees. Uh, for example, through specific local content requirements. 
in addition, you can't really have local content requirements if there is no local content to to use. So a parallel investment in education, in, in training of domestic companies and workers is necessary in order to, to get uh, or to be able to couple the national economy more strategically with, with foreign activities. Another recommendation would be also to divide larger projects into smaller tenders, at least in, in national tenders, to divide larger projects so that domestic companies actually have the opportunity to compete. And there are also possibilities to explore different loopholes in WTO requirements that can to see what can be used to protect and, and promote domestic companies. And I guess this all sums up as a more strategic development of, of uh, long-term strategies for, for industrial development. This is, of course, not straightforward. Uh, Mozambique is a party state where the economic and political elites are so intertwined and they often benefit from, from the status quo. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm aware that this is not necessarily a straightforward question or a straightforward recommendation. Well, I think that's some good insight to close up the podcast on. So, well, let's move from uh, your policy recommendations to uh, the personal recommendations. This is something we do at the end of each podcast, just saying something either that you've been reading lately or, or watching that has to do with the Belt and Road that, that you re- recommend our listeners to consume. I have two, actually. I First, I would recommend having a look at the uh, CARI or China Africa Research Initiative, which is a website and they have publications on there, but especially their data because they've strived to produce correct numbers on China Africa cooperation specifically, which is, has been a, a puzzle for, for academics and, and I guess uh, journalists and policymakers for years to actually know if you can trust the numbers. But they have some great data on on uh, investments and, and aid projects, etc. in Africa. Um, my second recommendation is is more of a entertainment uh, thing, uh, which is a that's fine. Which is a music video that is is produced by Tintura, the sort of state broadcasting uh, state broadcaster in in china is um a promotional video of the belt and road and it's uh, i really enjoyed watching that and it's kind of a it gives a very good impression of the more rhetorical way that that china is is promoting the belt and road initiative all over the world so enjoy is this is this the newest one with the that's like uh heal the world or the yeah, or yes yes oh, yeah, like the coca the, the, the coca-cola one it's a little bit of rap and a little bit of Chinese dancing and a little bit of, of everything while while singing about how the Belt and Road project will will benefit the world, really. Yeah, yeah, I, I, it's funny because right? I don't know if uh, I guess only uh, the most astute Belt and Road watchers uh, <laughs> would 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 know this, but the the tiny four second uh, audio clip that starts the show is actually from the original Belt and Road Initiative uh, kids song. Is it? Yeah. Yes. Uh, so, so where there's a little where the kids are dancing, and so if why the beginning sounds like a children's song is because it is, but it's a funny children's song about the Belt and Road Initiative that the yeah. Chinese media put out. And uh, I think, but, I think it, it gives a good, yeah, it gives a good presentation of 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 how China is is uh, is different in in sort of um, at a rhetorical level. For, for yes. presenting their, their economic project globally. 
So my recommendation for this week is to look up more about the International Institution of Environment and Development, their China-Africa Governance Project. It's been going on for a few years now, but they just put out a video a few weeks ago, a short documentary about a gentleman whose English name is Mr. Forrest. Uh, he's a Chinese, I guess, medium-sized timber entrepreneur. The China-Africa Governance Project as a whole is this uh, joint consortium between, funded by the UK Development Agency, the IIED, uh, China Timber Ministry, I might get have that wrong, uh, China Forestry Ministry, and uh, Global Environmental Institute, which is a a big nonprofit based out of Beijing, environmental nonprofit out of Beijing. And it's been this years long effort to do um, kind of joint work in order to solve uh, timber governance issues, specifically, well, throughout uh, various countries in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, but Mr. Forrest himself and his project that he has to uh, change his model to a more sustainable timber harvesting uh, in Mozambique happened in Mozambique. So I'll, I'll put the link to the short documentary and the uh, relevant um, report that IIED put out uh, in the show notes. But I highly recommend at least watching the documentary. It's entertaining, but also very enlightening to see important um, international partnerships are for facilitating and accommodating best practices and, and better governance, um, especially in uh, industries such as the timber industry in Mozambique. So uh, I recommend that. Thanks, Enrique, again for coming on to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure as well. You've been listening to the Belt and Road podcast. Uh, please uh, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at Belt and Road Pod. Uh, we are on iTunes, on Google Play, and on Spotify. Uh, please five star if you like us, one star if you don't. Whatever you do, leave a comment and it'll put a, push us up and get more listeners. So thanks again for listening. <laughs>